So we have, we went through a series called All In, which we were exploring what it meant to go all in with Jesus. What are those characteristics of the disciples of going all in with Jesus? And so some of the, the sermons or the topics that we went through were community, that we need a group of people to go all in with, that we practice, that uh, for most of us, actually all of us, you can't surf a big wave unless you practice on surfing small waves. So then talking about like prayer, worship, uh, generosity or giving, confession, uh, evangelism. So we practice these things. And then we had Professor Smith who talked about perseverance and then talked about generosity, that uh, we we're meant to live a generous life because God is a generous God. And so going all in with Jesus means giving of our time and our talents, that we're not only meant to believe in Christ, but we're also meant to obey him. Even in today's reading from Matthew, the Great Commission, it talks about that they would obey. So it's not just about believing, it's about obeying at the same time, and that we do all of this with the help of the Holy Spirit. I mean, all of this happens because of the Holy Spirit, and so he is inside of us. He's the third part of the Trinity. And then last week I talked about forgiveness, that if you've been in the church or if you've been human at all, uh, then you will have been hurt in some way, shape, or form by someone else. And so forgiveness is something that we're meant to practice. And then if we don't forgive, it's essentially like locking ourselves in a prison cell that essentially the key is on the inside and we have the opportunity to get out of that, um, which is our choice. And so forgiving is a huge part of um, going all in with Jesus. So what I generally do is have a, a Q&A at the end of a sermon series, and we call this a Living Room Sunday. And so what that looks like is that you can text, Todd's going to come up, this is Todd Magerly, come on up Todd. Todd is, um, Todd is going to be a pastor of this pastor with me uh, of, at this church. He is at Asbury Seminary right now getting his MDiv, and so he has one semester left. And so what we do is you text us any questions that you have, because essentially when I come up with sermons, what I'm trying to do is answer questions you might have. But I want to give you the opportunity to ask us any questions that you might have. So then you text in a question to that phone number right there, and then Todd will read them, and then he'll just share them with me. It's not going to show up with any, like, he's not going to say, like, hey, Bob wants to know why this is important. It'll be anonymous unless you put your name in there and you want it to be read or, you know, right? And so I, I won't know who is asking the question. He probably won't because your number won't be in his phone. Um, <laughs> And so you just text up a question that you have going all in or just any other question that you might have uh, for us. Because, I mean, I think the Jesus is inviting us into a journey with him. And on the one hand, it is extremely amazing and we are honored and we are privileged to say yes to Jesus. On the other hand, we all wrestle with sin and we all wrestle with doubt and trust and faith and all of these things. So on the one hand, it's like even in today's reading, uh, they all came before him and worshipped. But there's that beautiful little line in there that says, but some doubted. Because we all wrestle with doubt. Just a reality. So what does it mean to go all in with Jesus? So if you have questions, um, and they can be any question it is that you want to ask that don't, I think both Todd and I are really open to having hard questions asked of us and asking hard questions ourselves. So yeah, you just send them in and then we'll do our best to 
briefly answer them. Alrighty, so let's start with let's start with a heavy question. Um, for those who sometimes have doubt uh, or questions or have a hard time um, believing that they are good enough uh, or loved enough to be saved by God, what advice do you offer to those who struggle with that that fear of un, unworthiness? Well, I certainly think that's something that we probably all wrestle with in certain ways, that we all know our deepest, darkest secrets, which we all have. And we all have those things in our lives that, um, well, at least I do, have those sins in my life to where I just seemingly just can't get rid of. It just keeps happening and um, just, yeah, just those things. And so... I think the most important thing to remember is that it's my relationship with God doesn't hinge about how good I am or how bad I am, but it all really comes down to Jesus and my identity in Christ. That when I say yes to him and I'm born again, I am a new creation, and so my identity is no longer Sean McMaster's, but it is in Christ, Sean McMaster's, and so I am now a new being. So, And I think it's important to understand, too, that, I mean, and good and bad still matter. So it's not as if God, as if, you know, when I sin, that that's not detrimental to me or my relationship with God, but it doesn't change the way in which he sees me. Uh, there was an individual named Thomas Merton, and he, he wrote a beautiful book called The Seven Story Mountain. I mean, just it's his autobiography. The man was a phenomenal writer. He was a Trappist monk. And he would say that the thing that he said about sin that I thought was so beautiful and poignant and just really hit home is that when I sin it really disrupts my relationship between myself and God. And so then I feel unworthy and then I feel not good enough or I feel bad. And so the way that he said it is that I, would, I was to find out that I was to suffer for my sin by my sin, meaning that when I sin, then I have to suffer the consequences maybe both communally and just individually that I was to suffer for my sin by my sin. Um, but that doesn't change my relationship with God. I, I, I'm, I'm, I was born from death into life. And I think, I mean, if you go around and you just ask people around the streets and you say, like, well, are you going to heaven? And they say, well, I'm, I'm not good enough. It doesn't, being born again has nothing to do with being good or bad. It has everything to do with being dead or alive because the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is not bad behavior. And so when I'm born again, then I am born from death into life. And therefore, no, nothing can change that. I am now, as 2 Corinthians, I think, 5.21, I am now the righteousness of God in Christ. Like, that's who I am. Now, I may not feel that way all the time, but and, and that's okay. And the other thing that I'll say before we get to the next question is this, is that a, pre, a prerequisite of faith is doubt. Because if you didn't have doubt, then you wouldn't need faith. And so oftentimes we tend to be frustrated with ourselves when we have doubt, when in fact the opposite of doubt or opposite of faith would be complete confidence, like I'm completely sure in this. But 
a prerequisite of faith is doubt. So when you have doubt, it gives rise or an opportunity for you to be able to have faith. Okay, I feel bad about myself. I don't feel worthy, but I have faith. I have faith that I am in Christ. I have faith that you love me unconditionally. I have faith um, that in your eyes, I am the righteousness of God somehow in my car when I might be yelling pirate talk at other humans. Somehow, I am the righteousness of God in Christ in that moment. <laughs> Love it. All right, another, another heavy one. These are good questions. Um, given that the call in our life is towards forgiveness, that we are a people called to love mercy, are we allowed to have healthy boundaries on top of that? If there are people in our lives that are hurting us or that we have recognized as being dangerous to us or our loved ones, um, while we're called to be forgiving people, are we allowed to have boundaries as well? And how do we do that? That's a good question. Uh, obviously, you know, I'm bivocational as a therapist. And so, yes, having healthy boundaries is incredibly important, I think, just for being a healthy individual. Um, I don't, there are certain circumstances, um, like in the sermon last week, I talked about growing up with a stepfather that beat me for probably like 12 years of my life, so emotionally and physically abused me. Did I have boundaries around him? Yes. Was I going to call him up and say, like, hey, we should hang out? No. Um, did I forgive him? Yes, I forgave him. Um, but I think having healthy boundaries is important. However, what I would say is that um, if reconciliation is possible, then we want to lean towards reconciliation. If reconciliation is not possible, then you need to look out for your own individual emotional and physical well-being, certainly, first off. Um, but I have a family member um, who uh, we had an incident because we have teenagers, and so something happened with our teenagers. We all hung out together, and there was an incident with teenagers. Surprise, surprise. And so when you have a bunch of family members who all have teenagers, it's like exponential, and something is clearly going to happen. Well, a family member decided to uh, speak to me in ways that were just not okay. And so I said, hey, here's what's going to happen. Uh, we're no longer going to do these trips for a period of time. Uh, I cannot be around you, nor will I put my family around you. Uh, when we're together at holidays, then I will be as amiable as possible. Um, but there needs to be some distance between us. However, I did offer this individual, I think, five different opportunities to try and reconcile that, that incident, which was very difficult. Um, and so, I, and two, at the same time, you have to understand, for me, having difficult conversations is not that big of a deal. I know that for some of you, conflict is like just the most horrendous thing that could possibly ever happen. For me, I'm like, let's discuss hard things all day. Um, so I think if we tend towards reconciliation, yes, but boundaries, absolutely. Those are very healthy, and those are good, um, but you don't... And in the therapy world, we talk about that if, if boundaries are too rigid, um, then they're too rigid, but they might be too porous, and that they might you might allow for too many things to be happening. And then I'll finish up with this, too, is that what I have found in terms of boundaries... I have yet to experience or hear from someone that the person who creates boundaries does not end up being labeled as the bad person. 
Like you share boundaries with people and people are like, why are you doing this to us? You don't love our family. You don't love me. And you're like, no, I'm just creating boundaries to be healthy. We can talk about this in a different context. But yeah, boundaries, a huge fan of boundaries. Um, but they can be difficult. So, <laughs> constantly. Uh, so uh, a question on emotional healing. Um, if we get cut um, over the course of our life, we can observe that cut healing. Yeah. And we can develop a sense, because we get cut and bruised and scratched all life long, we can get a sense of what's normal in terms of healing. Uh, we can spot things that are not normal. Emotions are different. We can't really look at our emotions and examine them and see them healing. Um, why do they seem to heal slower? What's, what's normal for emotional healing? What kind of expectations can we have about what it will look like for those places inside of us that we can't look at, like to be restored and healed over time? Um, well, I think they take longer because emotions are, when you get hurt emotionally, I think oftentimes, especially in relationships, if I were to summarize, at least from my own experience, the times in which I have been hurt emotionally is where I thought someone was trustworthy and I could trust them and they ended up betraying that trust. So I gave trust, I gave friendship, I gave myself I entered into a relationship with someone who then did something that betrayed that trust of mine. I will say that one of the things that I probably wrestled with the most in terms of being in ministry and just being in the church is the feeling of betrayal. Um, whether or not individuals are trying to betray me, generally they're not, but I just you end up having that feeling. You know, I think that emotions are, are very special. I was going to say funny, but they, they're just really special. I mean, we are, um, God created us to be emotional beings, and we have emotions, and we don't get to control what type of emotions that we have. We just have emotions, and so oftentimes um, those, those hurts take a long time because they're generally complicated and difficult. Um, but what I have found to be an indicator that I have emotional unforgiveness or I have something going on with someone, if, if someone keeps popping up in my mind, in my world where they shouldn't be, like I'll be reading my Bible and, you know, Philip shows up in my, I'm like, why am I thinking about this guy right now? And it's on a regular basis. One that could be the prompting of the Holy Spirit saying, hey, try and work through this. Or it's just something inside of you that's saying like, hey, this is unresolved and it would be good to resolve. But I think, you know, a cut is pretty simple, although you get hurt, but emotional pain is, it's tough. And again, conflict is difficult. And then two at the same time, everyone in the room knows. So let's say an incident happens between you and Billy Bob. Well, you go to Billy Bob with what you think is the truth and how to move forward with all of this. And we all know, especially any of us who are married, you're like, how can you have such a different experience about this thing that we went to dinner and we had a fight over the dinner and you're having a wildly different experience than I am. And so perspectives are fascinating too because we all have different perspectives and you know that the other person is probably not gonna totally agree with it all. So it's, that makes it hard, man. Relationships are beautiful and difficult. 
I will, I will share a little bit on this one. Stop teasing me. Um, I, I, as you're sharing that, I'm remembering, um, bless you, sister. Do you need some water? Are you good? Okay. Um, as a kid, I could not stop messing with, like, my mosquito bites. Uh, I don't know if you guys had the same thing. I, like, when mosquitoes came through the summer, I, I grew up as a teenager in, in Tennessee, and they just ripped me to shreds. And I could not stop scratching at them. And I remember my mom telling, telling me to leave them alone. Leave the wounds alone or they won't heal. Um, and it's easy, if you've got a wound on the top of your arm, you can bandage that up and leave it alone. You can not mess with that. You can choose to. I didn't as a kid, but you could choose not to mess with that. But emotions are a little trickier. Like, how do you leave your emotions alone? Um, if you've been betrayed in your life, you've got a wound in the area of how your heart trusts other human beings. Every time you interact with a human being, you're touching on that place that's been wounded. It's hard to leave your emotions alone. I think part of the reason that... F- our emotions can seem like they take longer to heal is because we're constantly walking all over them and through them and in them and we're constantly interacting with our feelings. It's hard to set aside a part of our heart and leave it alone so that it can heal. Um, so that may be a part of what gives us that, gives us that impression. Um, okay, so in your opinion, Sean, uh, when it comes to the Western church and the Western world, where do you think we are strong with regards to uh, the spiritual journey and the spiritual walk? Uh, and where do you think we're uh, a little off the mark or where we need to do a little bit better as a Western people? <laughs> well, uh, that's a good question. Um, in the Western world, why well, I think that... Um, that's a good one. That's a good question. I mean, I think we're good in several areas... In theory, probably theology or just higher education. I mean, I think that, I mean, if you went to, let's say you went to South America, South America right now, probably one of the fastest places that the church is growing is in South America. Uh, So with all of our brothers and sisters there, but they, I mean, how many seminaries do they have there? Right. I mean, how many uh, places of higher education where you can go and get an MDiv uh, or a master's degree and learn about theology or learn Hebrew? Probably not many. So on the one hand, our higher education really is a strength of ours. uh, But then down there, the church is exploding, not because necessarily they have all the greatest intellectuals who have education, um, but just because of their fervor or their love for Christ and seeing Christ transforming them and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know, manifesting and all of those things. And so I think in terms of that, I think, you know, I don't know, that's a tough one. I I really struggle with uh, a lot of the Western stuff, so I'll probably err more on the side of like what I think we don't do well. Um, All right, let's just leave it at that. Um, I think what we don't do well or what we struggle with is I don't, I've always longed for community in the sense of actually being a group of people that journey together. Um, however, one of the things, we, we are the two, two things which I, I think are really impact our theology, and our theology is what we believe about God. So when you read a scripture like this, you know, the Great Commission, you read that, you have a belief about that. That's the biblical text. Then you have a theology, which is what you believe God to be saying in that text. So just theologically, uh, two of the things that really impacts our theology is, one, we are the most affluent materialistic culture to have ever existed in human history. 
I think that's a big deal, and that's a lot. Um, that we enjoy material wealth like no other culture has ever experienced, and maybe some other developed nations do at the same time. We can lump them in with being Western uh, cultures, but we just have things that we just take for granted that we just think is totally normative. And so on the one hand, that's great. On the other hand, that's tough. So if somebody gets sick in South America, then they're just going to be praying for that person for 24-7 to get healed. Uh, I just go down to Prestige Healthcare and I get antibiotics. Neither of those are bad. And then two at the same time, the other thing that really impacts our way in which we see the church is that we are also the most individualistic nation that has ever existed within human history. So two things, we're richer than any group that's ever been and there's nothing wrong with money or material wealth per se. And then at the same time, we are highly individualistic. And so we tend to have a very individualistic um, theology or approach to our relationship with God, whereas when you look at the biblical text, it's very communal. Uh, they were a communal people. They were together. They did things together. Family structures matter. Whereas most people in the church has certainly catered to this, come in to find an individualistic um, Sunday experience per se, which is not something that we do I just cater to the culture that we're in, and so on the one hand, I would say feel you know intellectually we're probably we're really high, but then in terms of material wealth it it does make for some challenges and then individualism for sure all right, so on the question of forgiveness um it can be easy to first think about forgiveness in terms of the people that have hurt us and wounded us, um, but we can also uh, struggle at times to forgive ourselves. Uh, and uh, it's been said time and again that oftentimes we are our own worst critics. And certainly when we fall, when we stumble, when we um, fail other people, we're the, we're the first person to know that. So we carry that knowledge around with us. Um, and I think the more our hearts are convicted by the word and by God uh, to do well, the more we feel that sting of, of personal failure. Uh, what words of advice can you offer for people who are um, struggling to work through their own guilt uh, and trying to forgive themselves? Um, yeah, it's a good one. That's something that I hear oftentimes. I do therapy at a rehab, so I often hear about guys talking about not being able to forgive themselves um, well. First off, a couple things. One is just identifying that and saying like, well, I, I do want to be forgiven and that I know that I need to work through this issue. Maybe it's a particular issue that you're wrestling with uh, something or, you know, and so trying to work through that uh, in a uh, methodical way. Um, and then a couple things. One is trying to share that with other people. One of the gifts of the church is confession, and I don't think that we take advantage of confession enough. And so confession is just sharing with a brother or sister what it is that we're wrestling with. Because oftentimes, and, and I assume all of us, if you are a believer in Christ, you've experienced this, where you build something up in your head, it seems to be this huge issue that you're wrestling with, and you know, it's just dominates your night and day and all of these things, and then you share that thing with a brother or sister, and the power of it just diminishes. 
you're like, why was I making such a big deal out of that? Oh, that's so weird. I, I can't believe I built that thing up to be so big. And so I was certainly a huge fan of confession. When, I, when I'm wrestling with something, um, I certainly, here even recently, because I'm in a, a program with the Vineyard, and so I get a spiritual director, a coach, and a mentor. I shared with them all the very same thing that I was wrestling with. This is what I'm wrestling with. Would you pray with me? Would you speak into this? And so, you know, that's something that we have, and we can just take advantage of that with being around our brothers and sisters is just the power of confession. And then last, and, and I've brought this up in rehab, and I think that it's important to understand if God, the Word of God says that we are forgiven in Christ, it's not because we've done anything or we're worthy of forgiveness, although He deemed us of being important enough for forgiveness, that He has given us forgiveness, de facto, done deal, that we are forgiven. So if we choose to not believe that, in my mind, Again, we are placing unforgiveness above God, and anything that we place above God is what the Bible and what I would consider to be idolatry. And so I tend to, and I've talked about this with my guys in rehab, if we choose to believe that I am unforgiveness regard or unforgivable, regardless of what the Word of God says, then I'm saying that that unforgiveness is more powerful than God because God says that I am forgiven. It's a done deal. And even though I don't believe it and I don't feel it, you know, trying to walk in that um, because I don't want to place anything above him. Um, and that obviously the Bible doesn't talk about dinosaurs, um, but it certainly talks about forgiveness, right? There are certain things that the Bible talks about all the time and forgiveness is one of them. And so, um, and I only bring up the dinosaurs thing because people are like, well, it doesn't talk about the dinosaurs. Well, the, the, the Bible's not trying to address dinosaurs and whether or not they existed or not, but it is trying to address our relationship with him and whether or not we are forgiven, which he says when we choose to enter into that forgiveness that we are. So uh, confession and don't be idolatrous. <laughs> That's it. Uh, if I could add one thing to that, um, there's a there's a moment. I, I think one of the one of the common tactics of the enemy of our souls is to call into question the word of God and cause us to doubt. And this is happening all the way back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say don't eat that apple? Or no, it's not an apple. But did God really say don't eat from that from that tree? Starting to question what God has declared as true. Um, and, and I think certainly there can be unspoken whispers in our heart to that end. Are you really forgiven? Is it really okay that you did that? And, and I'm convinced that's the enemy working against the surety and the certainty of the forgiveness that God offers to us. And, and it reminds me of, of one of the first questions there. What do we do with that sense that we're not worthy? Well, that's a trick question because the salvation of the Lord is not contingent on our worthiness. It never was, praise the Lord. The salvation of God and the forgiveness of Christ is contingent on Jesus's worthiness. And he is always and perpetually worthy. So that question, what if I'm not worthy, it doesn't even have to be answered. That's a deception. It's not about whether you're worthy. It's about who Jesus is and the fact that he's worthy. And so just thought I'd throw that out there because there are a lot of questions we can wrestle with that, are, that I think are distracting and deceptive. Okay, here's a really fun question. Please don't ever, I'm not assuming the person who texted this would be embarrassed by this question, but I have seen people get scolded for questions like these, and I love this question. 
this question gets hotly debated at seminary uh, in our, uh, in our, no, <laughs> well, I'll give you the, the seminary answer, but this is a fun question. Uh, when Jesus was alive walking the earth as a human being, was he also omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient while he was a man? I have never thought of this question in my life. So here I'm just going. Do you want to, since you have experience with this, evidently. I'm happy to share it, but I'd love to hear what you have to say. I would have to say yes, because he's both fully God and fully man. And so then I think then how does he, how can he be in all places at the same time? I don't know that because Christ, obviously, and interestingly enough, that Christ is still in human form, just in resurrected form within the new heaven. Um, so I don't know that he becomes less than God by becoming human. And if you go back into the creeds, you can see that they really debated this fiercely uh, within some of the, you know, getting together uh, at the councils and all of these things. So he doesn't become less than God by becoming human, although he does limit himself in some ways by becoming human. So how is his omnipresence available to him if he's a human? I don't totally know. One thing that I would say is that in, in the in the Greek mindset, we tend to use either or. Well, it's either predestination or I have free will. But within Judaism, the, the, it, it's both and. Gen, it, there's much more of a use of both and, and so it's not either or. Well, it's either this or it's that. Well, no, not really. Those are just words that you're putting in there to try and create a theological construct that makes it, can God, if God's all-powerful, can he create a rock that he can't lift? Right. I remember fighting fire in this guy and he brought that question up and then no matter what you answer God's not all powerful give me a break I mean right so it's not that doesn't that doesn't limit God and so I would say um, yeah it's both and and he's able look, here's the thing if God is only limited by what we're limited to then then what type of God is he and so at the same time the Jews and Jesus was and still is Jewish okay uh, we have to remember he's still a Jew to this day um, is that one of the things that Jews will say, because obviously they have a long history with God, um, they will throw their hands up and they'll say, only with God. Well, how does that make sense? Only with God. Do I have free will or is it predestination? Only with God. Only with God. <laughs> That's good. So I go to uh, uh, Asbury Theological Seminary. It's a Wesleyan uh, seminary. That may be relevant to how I've been raised up in seminary. Uh, but the answer at seminary would be unequivocally, absolutely yes. Uh, God is always God. Jesus is always God, all the time. A fun adjacent question to this was, uh, did God have a body before the incarnation? Or would he have had a body if, if we hadn't sinned? Would he have still been incarnate? There's a lot of questions that get asked around uh, the dual personhood of Christ, fully man and fully God. Um, personally, my personal conviction is because so much hinges, it seems logical that because so much hinges on Jesus as our example, uh, as, as the example to follow. I, I don't have much of a shot of following the example of Jesus operating in his omnipotence. I'm not omnipotent. You know, Jesus operating in Godhood is not something I can, I can do. But Jesus moving through the world as a man, 
uh, with you know, conforming to the limitations of a, of a human man, that's an example. It's still, I still fail every day, but at least that's in the realm of possibility. Uh, I think a, a fun question in this, in this realm is, when Jesus seemed to know a thing, you know, I saw you sitting under the tree before I met you, was that Jesus operating in his uh, omnipotence, or had he received that through the Father, through the Holy Spirit, the same way that you can receive a word of truth and prophecy? Um, it's, a, it's a phenomenal question. I, I think the correct orthodox answer is absolutely. He was always, always God and always man. Uh, but the example that we follow is, is the humanity. Uh, and I think one of the things Jesus represents in creation is when, draw, you know, when, when God says, be holy, be righteous, it's possible. Now, it's only possible with the help of God. We cannot do that on our own. But Jesus walks the earth demonstrating constantly what a human being could look like when they walk perfectly according to God's will. And we see that in him. So anyway, that's the answer I would give. Let's see if I've got one more here. Okay. Yeah, this is, this is super relevant to our time. So uh, not going to shock anyone to hear that there's a, a significant degree of political polarization in our culture. Uh, and because that polarization happens among human beings and the church is full of human beings, it follows us into the sanctuary. So for those, for those members of our community uh, who find themselves in the world being labeled uh, too conservative or too progressive or too liberal or, or too Republican or whatever it may be, um, what do you say to those people who at times feel like they may not have a place within the traditional evangelical world because of the way they feel um, marginalized or pushed into a corner politically in the world? Great question. Um, politics. I think that um, one of the things I love about this church is that there are very left-leaning people here, and there are right-leaning people. I, I guess it goes without saying that there's right-leaning people here in Chester County, um, that we have a wide spectrum of political beliefs and um, convictions, and so we have tried to create a space to where if you are a Democrat or if you are a Republican, that you would feel welcome here. And that I think the goal is, because there's a lot of, I mean, you know, being in, being in Shasta County, obviously it's very right-leaning and um, trying to create a space to where people feel comfortable having the convictions that they have. And there's a lot of people who believe very differently than you do that follow Christ. And that's good. That's not bad. And so, you know, politics is a funny thing. It gets very polarized. It's gotten way more polarized. And unfortunately, Shasta County keeps making the news for some really wonky things that are happening. And so it's tough to get away from that. But we... Dude, we don't lean either way, and I certainly don't either. I think it's a huge blessing to be able to live in a democracy, but we tend to not get overly involved within politics. Uh, we get involved. I, I, the only thing that I would say politically is go vote. 
That's it. And you vote your conscience. You vote what it is that you feel like God is asking you to vote. And if that's for a Democrat uh, person, then that's great. If that's for a Republican, then that's great as well. You know, at the end of the day, all of these things that are going on in our county or globally or, you know, presidentially or any of these things, these things have all happened before and they're all going to happen again. And I think that unfortunately it all comes down to power and control, which I think a lot of people are trying to get. Um, and I, I'm just not a huge fan. I have one, I have one vote. That's what you have. And if that makes you feel entitled to like freak out on people and to treat people inhumanely, then that speaks a lot to your theology and your belief of like having that even people who are not believers in Christ, those are still our brothers and sisters. When God looks out upon the landscape and he sees Muslims, he doesn't see infidels. He sees his children. Period. So if I choose to label people in a derogatory way, then that's me going outside of the scope of what Christ has called me into. Um, and so I think that that's wrong. Now, however, if we want to have civil conversations with people about these types of things, which I have found to be very difficult because people go off the deep end and then unfortunately can't substantiate their uh, claims uh, beyond maybe what they feel, then we can have conversations about that. But anytime I start to demonize other human beings and then I can justify that through their political beliefs, I mean, that's just straight evil. That's not cool, man, at all. My wife is a Democrat. I'm a registered Republican only because I thought it would be funny to register as a Republican. <laughs> Straight up. I, and I'm being dead serious. However, I tend to be much more fiscally conservative. But more than anything, um, yeah, I'm probably more just a little center, center left. But it all just depends. I'm, you know, and so um, that's where we land. I do... Um, we should honor those people that are in political power. But, I mean, at the same time, if you're not, there's a lot going on in Shasta County that is just wild and I am not okay with, um, as in an example of the individual, the, the white dude that got up and called the black dude the N-word, and then the black dude in Shasta County was the guy that got kicked out of that meeting. Like, yo, where where am I living? Like, that's not cool. However, I don't look at Patrick Jones and I'm like, that dude's my enemy. That dude either needs to get born again or born again again. Something's not right, right? So these are not my enemies, not even the guy that's a racist, if he is one, which we can assume that he is. They're not my enemies. So... Not fitting in, I think a lot of us feel like we don't fit in politically. Or maybe we feel like we fit in politically. I don't know. I've been in this city for 30-something years. I came here from South Lake Tahoe. I hated it the day that I got here, and I've wrestled with being here for 30-plus years. 
it's always been really tough for me. I'm a part of the cigar club here in town. They're, I mean, they are vast majority of them. All of them are just totally conservatives, which is actually cool. There's a lot of really cool conservative stances. So I maybe we just create a church of the people who don't necessarily feel like they belong here. I don't know. Or you feel like you do. That's fine. So that's where I would land. You know, politics is just funny. So, and it fascinates me. You have, we all have one vote, man. Like you have one vote within America, one vote. And you feel entitled to just thrash people. Crazy. And like the amount of power that you have in a democracy is really small, but somehow it entitles you to do all sorts of funny things. So hope that answered your question, but I wrestle with that too. Um, yeah. All right, well, we've got just a few minutes left here. Oh, and as I'm saying that, something just came in. Hold on one second. All righty. Oh, one second, let me read this real quick. So there's a passage in the, in the Word that says the path to heaven is narrow. Yeah. Um, what do we infer from that? What does that imply? Does it seem possible that some people... Uh, won't get into heaven in the end? Is it possible that some people who thought they were saved won't get into heaven in the end? What does a narrow path imply as we read that? All right, let me jam through this because we're going to go into community. Yeah, of course, there are going to be people who have said that they're Christians their whole life but didn't actually know Christ. And there's actually going to be people, in my assumption, that would probably not have considered themselves Christians but actually were born again uh, somehow in Christ. I mean, there's going to be all sorts of people on the new earth and the new heaven to where we we are going to see the magnificence of who Christ is, that it all really hinges on him. The narrow shouldn't be read as being scary and like, oh my gosh, I hope I'm on the narrow path. I mean, Jesus is able to walk that narrow path perfectly. Again, it's about me being in Christ, not me being the best Christian. However, as a follower of Christ, of course I want to do good and be good, so I'm not just going to you know, get in my car and you know, speak pirate talk and then just be like, oh, whatever, this is perfectly fine. I want to try and change that and become more fully alive in Christ and a mature man of God. Um, but in terms of like, yeah, there's going to be all sorts of people. I mean, I'm, uh, it's all about Jesus. That's all it's ever been about. And so the fascinating thing is, guys, and, and this is where biblical literacy becomes important. In the book of Acts, when they, they brought the Gentiles to the Jews and they said, what must they requirements must they have to be saved? If we were to ask that question these days of like, okay, there's all these people that are coming here. Here's all these Muslims that are coming here that need to be saved. What do they need to do in order to be saved? Well, in the book of Acts, I mean, being a Jew and a Gentile was a huge difference. Like the, the Gentiles, they referred to them as dogs. Uh, they, there was huge animosity between the two. And so you would think that they would create all these requirements for them to do. But there was really just two. They couldn't eat blood sacrifices or something like that. And they couldn't perform. Like it was, one was sexual and one was about diet. Which seems so foreign to us right now because we don't even think about that. Maybe that, that sexual one, right? I mean, we're like, yeah, well, you know, sex is for marriage. Um, but the requirements were so minuscule. Whereas now we, we might say, well, they need to do this and they need to do this and they need to do that. 
when in fact, if you're in Christ, then all of the work is done. Um, so hopefully that answers your question. And if you believe in Christ, then you're on the narrow road and he'll take you across in a backpack. Okay, we are going to have communion. Hopefully that was helpful for you. Uh, hopefully we answered all of your the questions that you had as best as we could. I, we really appreciate the questions. I mean, I, I think that following Christ, a lot of those details like what if, you know, what, what do we believe and what does this church believe and how do we navigate this? I mean, there's so many hard questions, you know, politics, sexuality, finances, all of these things. These are things that we're all thinking about on a regular basis. And if we're not thinking about it, then certainly social media is like pushing it down our throats and we're like, how do we wrestle with this? So hopefully that was helpful to you. Um, all right, we're going to take communion. This is something that we do every Sunday because um, it is the sign of the covenant that we have between us and Christ. The communion table is open for anyone who follows Jesus or would like to start following Jesus today. So if you want to say yes to Jesus today, then the communion table is open to you regardless of your political party that you um <laughs> are in. Um, and so uh, the way that we do it is you can you come down the center aisle and you grab a cracker and you dip it into the wine and then you go around the outside so we have a good flow of people and that the cracker represents his body that was broken for us and the wine represents his blood that was poured out for our sins. And so if you would like to uh, come down and take communion, please do.
Jesus, we thank you that you are sufficient. That you have paid the price for us. That you accept us and you love us as we are, not as we want to be. But you really do just love us. Thank you that your broken body paid the price and that your blood was poured out for our sins. Help us, Lord, to accept your gift that you are inside of us as we eat communion and we are inside of you. Let's partake. Well, why don't we stand? If you need a prayer for anything, we would love for you to come forward and we can lay hands on you and pray for you, anything that you're wrestling with. The Holy Spirit moves in powerful ways when brothers and sisters pray for one another. So if that's you, if you need it in prayer for anything, please come forward after the service. If not, um, I'm just going to pray for us and then we can scoot on. Well, Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you that you have created us as intelligent and emotional beings. Thank you that we get to interact with you in these ways and that you're not afraid of our questions and you're not afraid of our doubt and you're not afraid of the things that we wrestle with, Lord. Help us to be able to accept that's the way we are and, and that you love us regardless of what it is that we're going through. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill us, that you would empower us, that you would love us, that you would open our eyes to the things that you have for us, that you would open our eyes to your love for us and your acceptance of us, and you would open our eyes to the, the mission, the calling, the task that you have for us, and, and help us to be able to be the salt and the light of the earth in this area that deeply needs it, and so we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you want a prayer for anything, please come on up.